If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to the first chapter of John's Gospel account with me again, if you would. I have this sort of pet peeve, and I try not to say, at least most of the time, I try not to say the Gospel of John. It's just one of those things. It's not the good news of John. Who's John, right? It's like Gospel of Matthew. Who's Matthew? It's like, it's the Gospel, it's shorthand, right? It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about him, according to, so I won't read you the riot act if you say that, and don't you read me the riot act if I say it the other way, but if I say turn to John, you know what I mean. Um, but what I mean is turn to Jesus <laughs> is the idea. Anyway, thank you for this counseling session. We should pray in light of that and then get started. Father, thank you once again for today and thank you for what you've done in the world, most supremely through your son. And thank you in light of that, what you're doing in the world now and what you will continue to do. You're the God that we can trust. I pray that we would, that we would trust you and that we would follow you as you call us to. Encourage us today. Use your Holy Spirit to help us to understand and to have our hearts changed, to see you for who you truly are and to worship you because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by thinking about religious leaders and maybe some of the greatest religious leaders. Maybe even now, think of a great religious leader, one who has many, many followers, one who's made a big difference, maybe one who has a book related to their name or to their fame. Human history has had some great religious leaders. And I say great religious leaders based upon, if nothing else, than their great numbers of followers. I mean, if you think about how many people follow X, Y, or Z religious leader, you have to say there's something at least great about that man or great about that woman because they have great followings. I'm not saying I agree with them. I'm not saying anything like that. But they're great in that there's great significance in their teaching or their example. Histories filled with these, some more significant, some greater than others. And yet, it would be a huge mistake, it would be a huge mistake to compare any of them to Jesus in this sense. Jesus belongs in a category all his own. It wouldn't be fair to all those religious leaders because it wouldn't be a fair fight. It wouldn't be fair to Jesus because, once again, he is so utterly, completely, and exhaustively, and extensively different from any of them and an all of them, there's no comparison. And therefore, as you see Jesus for who he is, my hope and prayer is, is that you would therefore come to trust him in this life 
and in the next life, in time and eternity, because he isn't like any of the other ones. Not like any of them. And therefore, he's worthy of your confidence and your exaltation and your devotion. John chapter 1 is the catalyst for this. John chapter 1 comes out in such a powerful, profound, different, unique way that that's why I say it's not even a fair fight. It's not even close. Categorically, to keep saying that, categorically different. And so he should be the one you trust. I understand we compare these other leaders to Jesus to show that he's better, to show that he's different, to show that he is worthy of our trust, unlike these others who haven't been raised from the dead and all those kinds of things. But in another sense, I just want you to, to, to hopefully feel some of the intensity of John chapter 1 to see there's no comparison. That doesn't make us better. The more we know about Jesus, the more we understand that's not the case. But it does make him unique and different. And we should think of him in, in totally different categories. And hopefully we're going to be able to do that in light of studying John together, the gospel according to John. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to have the book introduced to us or the letter uh, introduced to us. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. And as we look at the first 18 verses, you'll be able to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I tried to make an outline, and I think after, I don't know, like 17 points, I thought this isn't very helpful. Um, but you could study this, and, and I'll give you bullet points. I won't number them. But in light of the passage, we'll, we'll look at a portion, and then we'll be able to say, therefore we can conclude that Jesus is this, 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 and this. Then we'll read some more. Therefore we can conclude that Jesus is this, 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 and this. We just need to understand who Jesus is. One more point of introduction would be the opening 18 verses are in concentrate what the rest of the book will unpack for us. So I'm going to take the advice of, of a writer I really appreciate and respect and I'm going to try purposefully to do all 18 verses today. Because the advice given is, don't stop too long in the introduction because it's meant to be an introduction. Because if you do, you actually won't save all of that stuff for later where it's intended to come. Okay, so everything we hear in the first 18 verses is, again, in compacted preview kind of form, a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a teaser, a little bit of an introduction of what we're going to get later. And so what ends up happening is you've got to go to the later stuff to really understand this stuff, or you go to this stuff here at the beginning to understand the later stuff. And so we'll go back and forth. But for today, I purposely want to go fast to get us going to as to where the, this is headed. But it's, it's amazing. I'm terrified of John chapter 1. Because you've got all of this super duper significant profound truth about Jesus. It's overwhelming. Oh, I said one more thing. Two, one, more, one more thing. I'll probably go out of my way today to not tell you very much about your life. 
Doesn't that sound like an insult? I don't mean it that way. I'll go out of my way to not tell you very much about your life. Because this isn't about your life. And it's not going to help you that much if I try to make what's not about you, about you. Let's have this be the gospel according to John regarding Jesus. I want you to say, I didn't learn anything about myself this morning. In one sense. Because I want you to say, Jesus is incomparable and unrivaled to all of the others. Therefore, he's worth my confidence. And if I'm trusting in him, to quote the lyric, I can face tomorrow. And so in that sense, it has everything to do with your life. But let's have this be a time of being impressed so that we might worship, so that we might know, so that we might know, so that we might worship, so that we might live in light of. A third thing about... No, I'm kidding. Let's go. Let's just settle in and and let things begin moving. John 1.1 says, In the beginning, that immediately reminds every Bible reader of what? Of Genesis, and it's meant to do that, right? In the beginning, so that's Genesis-esque on purpose. The very beginning was the Word. So in the very beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John probably wants us to read the whole letter in light of that. So we can conclude that Jesus was in the beginning. That is to say, there never was a time when He wasn't. Because he was in the beginning. We can conclude that Jesus was, was with God. That's unique. We can conclude that Jesus was God. We could say is God, but the point here is to point to the past. And we could conclude that Jesus is the Word or the ultimate revelation. Don't want to get too slowed down here, but just for a moment, because if you start doing any reading on John 1, 1, it's like word and what is word. And if we keep things in context, we can understand that word is God and the word became flesh, verse 14, and we can keep our sanity and we know a word is a title for Jesus. But I just want to let you know, and this is probably just some of my target audience, not all of you. Some of you are like, I don't care about that. But too many times we try to say, what does this mean? What does it mean historically? And it's a philosophical category. And before you know, we've got to understand Plato to understand word. Just remember that John, like the other writers, is depending primarily on the Old Testament. Okay? As a matter of fact, when we get into John, it's going to be filled with Old Testament stuff. All of that preview is finding its fulfillment in Jesus, word in the Old Testament, again and again and again, word refers to God's power to judge, God's power to save and deliver, God's power to create, God's revelation of himself in creation, revelation of himself in salvation, revelation of himself in condemnation. That's the Old Testament background. Let's remember that. This is talking about the revelation of God. The all-powerful revelation of God that creates out of nothing. The all-powerful revelation of God that can deliver His people even though it looks like they can't be delivered against every odd imaginable. So I'm going to suggest to you that in light of the Old Testament, 
Word. Ultimate revelation from God that is all-powerful. Think about creation. It's a creation context. Think about salvation being a new creation. Deliverance. That's a better way to understand it. Someone put it this way. In short, God's Word in the Old Testament is His powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. His ultimate self-disclosure. His own Son. Verse 2. I'll go faster, I promise. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. How about that? Just, just alone for a staggering statement. He was in the beginning with God. See what I mean by all of these other quote-unquote great leaders aren't even in the same category. John wants us to have the preview and we're going to get it later throughout the book. Jesus isn't even in the same category. Because Jesus is the one who was in the beginning with God. Which is awesome and great. And it also shows the absolute foolishness of putting your confidence in time and eternity in anyone or anything else. He was in the beginning with God. Unlike all others, unique. Verse 3, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. He he has life in Himself. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In light of those verses, conclusions about who Jesus is, well, He's the Creator. Hebrews 1 would tell us the same thing. Oh, He's the Sovereign. He's the Sovereign if all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. See, because if he's the creator, then it all belongs to him. And therefore, everything, everyone should submit to him. He he really is the Lord. And we're going to see it unpacked in John. Creator, sovereign, the worthy one. There's implication. Well, Jesus also, from those verses we can conclude, is the possessor of life. Right? Creation life. New creation life, even, we could say. He is also the giver of light. Probably revelation. We'll see lots about light in John. He also, we would conclude, is not only the giver of light, but he is the light. How about that in verse 5? He is the light. And how about the fact that shining in darkness... And darkness has not overcome it. So he's not only the light, he's the unstoppable light. That's going to be important because in our gospel accounts, oh, ending in crucifixion, sometimes it looks like he's stoppable. No, he's, he's unstoppable. That's who he is. It anticipates that there's going to be rejection, Right? The darkness has not overcome it. Again, this, this is not, well, what you're going to see is, this is how it's supposed to be and it didn't work out. It's not even the case. Categorically different from anybody ever and everybody else. Even all of the Old Testament prophets. How about that? Even the, the legitimate 
spokespeople for God. Not to mention the illegitimate ones. He's in a totally different category. Okay, let's, let's keep going. In verses 6 to 8, there's a little bit of a veering. Okay, It's related, but it's a little bit of a veering. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God. I mean, that right there is pretty awesome. Right? Not very many people have that related to them. There was a man sent from God. Wow! That would make that person a great person. I love it that this part is including. I call it a veering. I love it that it's here because it makes, this, it makes a point of contrast. Jesus isn't just the one sent from God, but, but there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John, as we will see, the baptizer, not the apostle, not the same person who writes this account. Verse 7, he came to witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. We're going to see that that's important for eternal life. That's why we would believe in him. So verse 8 then says, he was not the light, just to be clear, but came to bear witness about the light. We're going to learn a lot about him next week. Then in verse 9, we're, we're back on track. Not that we really were off track, but we'll put John aside for a second. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world true light coming into the world. True light which gives light to everyone. A couple of things there. Throughout John's gospel account, we're going to have a lot of Old Testament emphasis and Moses and Abraham. And in the Old Testament, the law coming from Moses, given from God, would be associated with light. And yet here we have these kind of preview statements, these compacted statements. He's the true light, like the ultimate light, the ultimate revelation from God. There's been light through the law, through wisdom, but, but, but he's the true light as in ultimate it seems gives light to everyone. That's a little bit complicated. Everyone. How is it that Jesus gives light to everyone? So everyone is a Christian. Well, if you read the whole, even in our chapter, no, not everyone comes to believe in Jesus. It's even talked about here. So I don't know for sure what he means by it, and we'll see this throughout John, and we can make some more sense of it as we go. Gives light to everyone. Perhaps it's Everyone in the sense that Jesus divides all of humanity. If you're trusting in him, if you embrace the light or you reject the light, I mean, everybody has to deal with Jesus. A lot of Bible commentators would say that that seems to be the idea because we know that it's not saying that everyone embraces him as Savior. And, and that would be true if, if you hear about Jesus, the light, and you say, I embrace in faith or I reject You've received the light in that sense, with rejection or acceptance. Or it could be everyone, as John uses it sometimes, we'll see, is, is everyone as in it's a universal Jew and Gentile kind of thing. It's not just a Jewish thing. 
everyone without distinction, some would say. Not everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction. All different kinds of people, rich, poor, men, women, boys, girls. I'm not sure which one is meant here because we have this compacted preview kind of thing. But what I do know is he's not saying everyone universally embraces Jesus as the light and is going to heaven because we don't even see that in our chapter. Verse 10. He was in the world. I'm trying to use self-control to not just launch there. He was in the world. He was here. He was in the world. Sometimes we say, well, you know, you have your thoughts about God, and I have my thoughts about God, and, and you know, we really, we, you really can't know. He was in the world. He was here. So if these things are true, and he says this is how it is, guess what? We can know. And actually, humility wouldn't be saying we can't know. That would be arrogance. So if there is such a thing as the one who was there with God, who is God, and he was in the world and he spoke, we can actually know. Not politically correct. Not a fair fight. But if he was in the world, it changes everything. It changes everything. For good, unless you're a great religious leader who's in opposition to Jesus. <laughs> he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Again, sovereign over it, respect, recognition, yet the world did not know him. How about that? Positive statement, positive statement, and then what? They did not know him. There's rejection. Verse 11, he came to his own. Oh, it gets worse. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's terrible. We're going to get a good dose of that in John. But I do want you to know that that's not new. That sounds like the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to make sure we understand this is just an ongoing pattern. God sends a prophet. God sends a prophet. God sends a prophet. Rejected, rejected, rejected. Now God sends his own son who doesn't have a problem communicating. <laughs> and they reject him too. The problem isn't with God, see. The problem is with the human race. So we need God to solve the human race problem. So we need God to become one of us. It all starts fitting together. Isn't this exciting? It's tremendously exciting. Verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, so receiving and believing go together, in Him, right? He gave the right to become children of God. That doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense because they're receiving Jesus. They're believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. We'll see more, by, more later why that's so true. Verse 13, who were born 
not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born of God. We're going to get that in chapter 3, right? Preview time. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh. Incarnation, right? Took on flesh, became a human being. The Word became flesh. The eternal beforehand God who was with God, who was God, became flesh, became one of us and dwelt among us. And, he, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. So, I've got to come up for air and say, okay, Jesus is, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who was here. We've already been talking about that. Jesus is the one who was rejected here. Jesus is the one who was accepted here. Jesus is the way to true sonship, heirship for men and women. Jesus is the one who brings the new birth. We're going to get that in chapter 3. We just saw it in our verses. Jesus is the one who is the true temple. We'll come back to that in just a second. Jesus is the one who uniquely witnessed to the glory of God. So what I failed to emphasize was the temple part. Go back to verse 14 with me if you would. The Word became flesh. We know Word is God. The Word is the one who was there with God, became flesh, okay, became a human being and dwelt among us. And if you've been around the Bible very long, you've probably heard a Bible lesson. And if it was a good one on this verse, they would have told you that dwelt is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament idea of what? Tabernacles, right? You could literally translate it tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. A tabernacle is a tent. It's where you stay, okay? So in the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle where God would come and uniquely stay with his people. And then later you have the temple where he would come and uniquely stay with his people. The presence of God. It's how God chose to do things in the Old Testament. And, and it, it was unique, special, extraordinary, mysterious, yes. But the, the concept, the idea is, Jesus is God come to stay with us. He is God come to be with us. He's the ultimate revelation of God. He's the ultimate What do I want to say? He's the ultimate. How about that? God came to earth. In our greater context, as the ultimate revelation, the, 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 the most knowable, most extraordinary. And we'll see this as we go throughout the gospel account, but we've got those Old Testament realities anticipating ultimate realities because now we're talking about God's son ultimate fellowship with God ultimate relationship with God how does it happen it happens with Jesus because he came and he was here to tabernacle among us to be God 
with his people. And we can fast forward Jesus never leaving us, Jesus giving his spirit. I mean, we could fill in lots of lines and we'll do that. But, but these kind of things in miniature compact form are on purpose. Jesus is going to go on and say, destroy this what? You destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. I mean, it's not just stylistically, uh, uh, it's not the reason why he's saying what he's saying here. It's getting us ready for what we're going to see. No religious leader can say that. Well, they can say whatever they want to say, but you get the idea. God, here, so that we can know him. It doesn't end there. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Preeminence, preeminence due to preceding. Doesn't make sense. The person who shows up first should get the most emphasis right. But not in this case, because actually the one who showed up first is none other than the eternal word who was face to face with God. Doesn't stop there. Verse 16, for from his fullness, because he is the full revelation of God, the extraordinary, not anticipated, but fulfillment. For from his fullness, we have all received, which is interesting. I wrote in my margin, all who have received... Because in verses 11 and 12, we've heard that some haven't received and some have received. So keep it in context. For from his fullness, we have all, well, who does he mean? We've all received, well, we've all received, that is, those who have received. Among those who have received, we've all received what? Grace upon grace. Notice in your margin, I'm preaching from the English Standard Version. Your translation might say it differently or your marginal note might say it. Another way you can translate the Greek text. Not grace upon grace. It could be translated that way. Or it could be grace in place of grace. A little Greek word, anti, instead of. Grace instead of grace. It's a head scratcher. Those who believe in Jesus, who've received Jesus, we've received grace instead of grace. Huh? We've received grace in place of grace. Hmm. You know? Grace upon grace, that's easier to understand because it's just so extraordinary, it's so awesome that he just doubles it and says grace upon grace. That would, true or false, apart from our passage. I, I like that. That's a good way of saying it. But let's stick with uh, just kind of wooden, literal. Those who've received Jesus and believed in Him, this would be true of you if you have. It would be true of me if I have. It would include anybody and everybody else who has. We've received grace instead of grace. Well, maybe it would be mostly true for these first century people. Here's what I mean. He's going to get to Moses in just a second. And there's grace in the Old Testament, isn't there? Yeah. 
Every Jew would say, it was awesome. Read Exodus. It's amazing that God came to us, mediated through Moses, and he gave the law. He did, we didn't deserve that. We're sinners. What we deserved is just to be mowed down for our rebellion. And instead, he gave us revelation. He came in a veiled way, but he came through Moses. We love Moses. We love God's revelation. We've received a gift. And if they're thinking the most soberly the way they should be thinking, we've received something we don't deserve. We're not better than the other nations. We've received grace. Comparison, arguing from the lesser to the greater, anticipated to fulfillment, we've received grace in place of grace. We've received a better kind of grace. I think that's the idea. I'm in great company when I say I think that's the kind of idea. We've done this. This has happened. He's done this. See, according to context, verse 17, for the law. See, let's make sure we put 16 and 17 together. For the law was given through Moses. The Jews would have, if they were thinking sanely, would have said, we didn't deserve that. We received that. That's grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, ah, came through Jesus Christ. Maybe to finish it out, and then we'll come back to it for a second, because the flow is the same. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. I mean, think Moses, Exodus 33, 34. He did see God, but in a veiled sense, not in a full sense. No one has ever seen God truly, genuinely, ultimately. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He's made him be seen because he tabernacles among us. So, yeah, there's grace in the old, but we've got grace instead of grace, in place of grace, ultimate grace. Tabernacle in the Old Testament, did the people deserve that? No. Sacrificial system that would point to Christ, did they deserve that? No, all of those types, all of those shadows, all of those promises, they didn't deserve any of those things because they were sinners when they received them. But those things were always designed to find fulfillment in the one who would be the one. And now we've received it. It's what we've been waiting for even if we haven't been waiting for it. Grace, in place of grace. In other words, if you're back here, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? You see why this would make the point to the Jewish audience who's the original audience? It would make the point that you are insane if you go back to that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Types and shadows, antitype, to use a fancy word, fulfillment, reality, he became flesh. Trust in Jesus is the idea. There's a whole debate about whether or not there's grace in the Mosaic Law. I don't really want to get bogged down in it. My understanding would be this. 
Once Adam and Eve fall, the human race falls into sin through Adam, our head. What God owes the world is condemnation. So for him to give the sacrificial system, for him to give his revelation, for him to give his law, for him to give anything, I mean, it, that's, that's gracious. That's meant to point to Christ? That's gracious. Period. Next sentence. In the Bible, we see it's seen as positive over here. Um, Romans chapter 7 would affirm the goodness of the law. The Apostle Paul wrote, wrote Romans, last time I checked. Okay? He also writes Galatians. And if you approach the law for your justification, the law is bad. And there's no grace in it for you. So it's not an either or, it's a what do you mean? The law is gracious because we didn't deserve to have it and it tells us what's true about God and what he requires and it anticipates the coming of Jesus. That's good. It's gracious. But it was never meant to be an end in and of itself. And if you approach that law for your justification because I'm going to do these things and if I do these things, God will accept me. It's bad. depends on how you approach it. It points me to Jesus. That's, that's, that's kind. That's gracious. I don't need Jesus. I can just do it. Not good. Bad. Not gracious at all. So it just depends. Probably told you more than you wanted to know. But what we do know and what we've seen throughout our first 18 verses is in preview, compact form, Jesus is the one and he is in a class all of his own so that you'll be ready to see all of these historic accounts where he proves this to be the case so that then, by the time you get to chapter 20, I hope before then, you'll be able to say, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah Savior. He's the one we've been waiting for even if we haven't been waiting for him. He's the one. Changes everything. Okay? I invite you <laughs> to see the worthiness of Christ and his revelation of himself all the more if you already see his worthiness. And if you don't already see it, I invite you to see him for who he is. You know, I kind of want to say, I dare you. Just, just put him to the test. Not that you're the judge, ultimately, but for, for argument's sake, go ahead. I dare you to. He really came here to show, to prove that he's the one we've been waiting for and he's the one you need. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... The good news of salvation in Jesus. Thank you that he, as we will see, voluntarily went to the cross where he voluntarily, though through great excruciating pain and severity, he voluntarily went to the cross where he would satisfy your justice. 
and that he went there so that we might have our sins forgiven. And thank you for the fact that because of what he did, uh, there is new life and new birth in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Overwhelm us with the significance and the greatness of Jesus. That's our request. That we would see that he really is the one, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, whether we're a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, no matter where we come from, that we might see that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world and worthy of our confidence. Just fuel the motivation, fuel the desire that we might see him for who he is. In Jesus' name, amen.